uh, we have like four episodes we're working on at the same time. Oh my and gosh. So it's a race to the finish line. Oh my God. How stressful. <laughs> Welcome to the Hybrid Pub Scout podcast, mapping the publishing frontier with stories of publishing past, conversations with publishing professionals of today, and peeks into publishing's future. I'm Emily Einolander, and today's guest is Nicole Georges. Nicole J. Georges is a writer, illustrator, podcaster, and professor from Portland, Oregon. Her Lambda award-winning graphic memoir, Calling Dr. Laura, was called Engrossing, Lovable, Smart, and Ultimately Poignant by Rachel Maddow, and Disarming and Haunting, Hip and Sweet All at Once by Alison Bechtel, author of Fun Home. Allo, Dr. Laura, (laughs) was an official selection at the Angoulême International Comics Festival. Calling Dr. Laura is being adapted as a seven-part podcast series with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Nicole's latest book, Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home, is the recipient of two Oregon Book Awards and a Lambda nomination for Best Graphic Novel. It received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and the Library Journal and was voted a 2018 Great Graphic Novel for Teens by the American Library Association. It is currently in development for television with Sid Gentle Productions. Nicole won the Sunburst Award for Excellence in Arts Education in 2012. She was the 2013 Fellow at the Center for Cartoon Studies, the 2015-16 Donaldson Writer in Residence at the College of William and Mary, and currently teaches at California College for the Arts MFA in Comics program. She's been publishing her own zines and comics for 25 years and has toured the country extensively, including two appearances on Michelle T's Sister Spit Tour. Nicole splits her time between Portland and Los Angeles with her Chalmeranian best friend, Ponyo Georges. She is the host of the podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Welcome, Nicole. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I told everyone everything about you already. So um, we're going to have to go deeper with this uh, interview. (laughs) Excellent. So you have a very strong Sagittarian identity with your podcast and all, but I didn't see anything about your moon and rising signs. Um, are you comfortable sharing those and your relationship oh, yeah. with them? Oh my God. <laughs> I talk about, I say this on my podcast every minute. Everybody knows I have a Capricorn moon and rising. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I can't stop. I can't shut up about it. My partner's a Capricorn and I often will jump in on the Capricorn conversations and then she'll be like, I thought you were a Sagittarius. I'm like, yeah, but I have a lot. I have a lot of things, a lot of planets in Capricorn. I really can't shut up about it. I'm so proud of it. So thank you for it. Of course. That's a very Sagittarius move though, to like jump in and like co-opt somebody else's sign because it's one of your placements. <laughs> No offense. I swear it's like seven of my placements. It's 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 everything except for my Sagittarius. I'm like tap dancing and then I'm like, you better do it right. You better do a good job tap dancing for those people. Um, yeah, yeah my, I, I agree with you. <laughs> my husband's a, a Leo um, and I am a Leo rising in moon. And so I, I kind of do the same thing with him. But I'm an Aquarius. My birthday is tomorrow, actually, to date this podcast. But um, yeah, so happy that's almost fun. birthday. Huzzah! Yeah, so that's uh, 
that's relatable as hell. <laughs> well, see, then to me, it seems like probably like you what your emotionality is Leo and then the way you present to the world is Leo. Is that that's yeah, that's what they say. And then just um, very jarring surprises periodically from the Aquarius side of myself <laughs> for people. <laughs> well, you know, if you read Chani Nicholas's horoscopes, she has people read their sun sign and their rising sign when they read their weekly horoscopes on her website. Okay. Well, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to do that next time. Um, all right. Well, uh, hello, Ponyo. <laughs> What's your sign? We, you know, I talked to an astrologer before who said she thought Ponyo might also be a Sagittarius. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> she loves to travel. She's a good traveler and, uh, she is quite gregarious and likes humans. I love it. So, Let's talk about zines a little bit. We had uh, Shelly Pearson on in episode 18, and she was the one who let me know that not only are you an avid animal portrait artist, uh, you also met in your zine days. And I would love to hear about your experience in that scene and how self-publishing kind of helped you create the work that you later had published. Yeah, well, I'm 40 now, and I started making zines when I was 14, Um I started making them when I was living in outside of Kansas city in suburban Kansas. And I found riot girl zines, like very, um, like diary entry kind of, um, confessional sort of zines. And I realized that people could write about their own lives. And it, it really was a huge, it was a huge moment for me to learn that and and feel connected to these women. It was, you know, when the internet was like in a baby stage, that wasn't that great. Mm -hmm. And so it was a real way of connecting with like political ideas about like anti-racism and homophobia and sexism and hearing about race and people's mental health. And I mean, all kinds of stuff that people don't talk about on a normal own diary zines and my own diary comment. And it really made me feel like I had a place in the world. Um, and I moved to Portland when I was 19 and I was like, zines, I'm here. I love zines. I tried to work at Reading Frenzy. It didn't work. They moved me upstairs to the Independent Publishing Resource Center, which is like a community art space for self-publishers. Right. And then I helped co-found the Portland Zine Symposium. Uh, and so I, I did a zine called Invincible Summer for a really long time. I still kind of do it, but um, yeah, I, I think I might always make zines. I feel like my podcast is sort of like an audio zine. Well, when you make that comparison to uh, to the internet and that being kind of the locus now for learning about all of these uh, different things that you wouldn't otherwise see in your home, especially as a teen, um, I can see how translating that to a podcast, it makes all the sense in the world, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I started the podcast because I, I, I teach at an MFA program. So I always have cartooning students, comic students, and I have a lot of friends from being, from doing the same thing for a billion years, for doing the same thing for like 26 years. I have a lot of friends who are professional artists or musicians, people that just did it long enough that somehow it morphed into their life. And I was having all these kind of behind the scenes talks with them about the life of a working artist or what it was like as a working artist and our philosophies around kind of capitalism, anti-capitalism, how that affects your art. And I just realized, I was like, I wish my students could hear these conversations. There's no reason these need to be privileged conversations between two artists. Like mm -hmm. this is something that other people could probably 
find useful. And so absolutely, I started the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very organic way that that happened. It sounds like. Um, so how did you kind of move from that self-publishing, um, to, uh, getting published traditionally? How did that transition happen for you? Oh, I, well, microcosm put out some collections of my zines. Mm. So my first books were punk published, like independently published. Um, and I, it basically was just me making my zines for a long time on my own dime and just making enough that they're like, oh, it seems like people like these. Would you like to put out a book? At first, my friend Greg at Tugboat Press was like, do you want, do you want to put out an anthology or do you want to put out a graphic novel? And I was like, ooh, an anthology graphic novel seems like too big of a deal. And then um, I went on Sister Spit in 2007 and I was reading a story about the time I called Dr. Laura and how kooky it was and how a palm reader told me my dad was alive when I thought he was dead my whole life. <laughs> And a literary agent came up to me. This was right after Fun Home came out. And so publishers were chomping at the bit for lesbian dead dad content. And that's (laughs) what I was peddling. And she was like, would you like to make a graphic novel? I think you can make a lot of money. And I was like, oh, damn, I need some money. And I just don't have, I don't come from very much. I don't have a safety net. I make all these things out of the goodness of my heart. Not, you know, for no reason other than I feel compulsed to. And so I was like, oh my God, yeah, I want to make, you know, I think it's a lot of people's dream to get paid to just do their art. And that's what I thought I was doing. But I just want to add for fun that like, I got paid so little that when I signed my first book contract, I, I wept because I was like, oh my God, I already have two jobs. And now I'm signing a contract for another job that's giving me so little money that I am like crying. Oh, but now no. I have to do this for the next three years, which <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy I did, but it wasn't like the thing that had been peddled to me which was like, I think we're going to make a lot of money. It was just. Right. It's not that big, big life-changing, like, uh, well, I mean, I guess it would be life-changing, right? But it, it's not that whole, like, I'm, I've got the ticket to the life I want now. I'm, I'm rich. <laughs> Everything I, is well, over. It was a little bit, I think a lot of things, when you're self-employed as an artist or a musician or whatever kind of artist you are, it's all incremental. And this was just like another lesson in like, it's incremental. Like there's not a big surprise, you know, payday that you're just going to fall in and then everything's done. And you just get to like roll in the money for the rest of your life. Like Scrooge McDuck, <laughs> like you, I, like, I just get to keep working and the things I get to do are a little better or pay me a little more or have a little more exposure. And that's all, it's just all still incremental. Right. I mean, even now it feels incremental and I'm grateful for that. But I think at the time I was like, what am I going to do with all this money? Should I buy a house? I got to invest it. I got to do something good, man. It's, I don't even know what to do with so much money. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting how that uh, perception changes over time. Um, well, yeah. And how, how has it changed your way of doing business from when you were kind of more in that, um, you had to do everything. Do you still have to do everything yourself the way that you did when you were self-published or has some of that burden been taken off? Well, being published by a major publisher, Um, they have great distribution. They have wonderful distribution. They're very professional. I don't need to worry about anyone's like opinion of my personality affecting whether or not I get paid or like, I just, it's like, it's nice. The bureaucracy of it with a Capricorn moon and rising makes me feel very (laughs) at home and relaxed. Like I'm like, oh, there's paperwork. Phew. Um, So that part's good. But so what I do now is I 
hired my own publicist and worked my butt off to publicize these books because the thing with the books that I published before, the things that with the books that were self-published, like my diary comics, or even a book I made about my senior citizen friends. Um, I volunteered at a senior center and made a comic about them, and that was self-published. But the difference is these these graphic novels that I've done for Houghton Mifflin, my other publisher, are so hard to draw. They're emotionally hard to draw because they're about like family secrets, or the other one was about my dog dying. They're so emotionally laborious and they take so long. They take years and years to draw that then by the time they come out, I'm like, I am so happy the publisher is going to promote it, but I'm going to promote the fuck out of it the best I can. So I'm going to like go on a nationwide tour. I'm going to fly wherever people want me to be. I'm going to be on podcasts. I'm going to promote the heck out of this because I just want the promotion. I want like to try my very best to make all these years of like isolated solitude worth it. Well, and I bet your publishers love you for it too. I think so. I mean, I think sometimes they were overwhelmed. They're like, wow, that's a lot of ideas. And I was like, just let me know. Just let me know. I was like, I'm ready to go. Like yeah. I, both of my books, when they came out, I like, I don't have, I'm still not a man of means, but I threw my, I flew myself to New York both times to meet with the publicity departments at the publisher to be like, okay, what's our strategy? What are we going to do? Well, as long as I'm you're doing the-, the work and not afraid to talk to people. Yeah. I just, I feel like it's, it does a service. It does a disservice to the work to put that much effort into it and then hide away and make people work harder than they need to, to find it. I've, I've benefited so much from those riot girl zines that were talking about like confessional things and really heavy emotional issues that I want to be able to find the people that need this book with who might not even know how to find it otherwise. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh writing as an art as a service is something that a lot of people forget on the uh, on the business side of things that there is that element of giving of yourself whether or not you're um, asking for money in return or not it's not it's just like sorry to make it all so money wise I just it's just like you know I don't get paid if people know what my book is necessarily but if mm-hmm. my book gets out there to more people I just if I had found like a gay, vegan fe- feminist book where somebody had these hard times and ended up okay. It, it could have saved, I mean, those zines saved my life when I was a kid. Oh, rather than the mainstream tragic dying lesbian, uh, oh sort of, God. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I came to LA is I was like, oh my God. Or, or why I even write books is like, I cannot with these like lesbian torture porn, like these things where yeah. it's like, everybody gets punished they get caught, they get punished or they kill themselves or they get killed and it's awful. And they had one moment of gay sex and then they just get punished forever. And I just, yeah. there really needs to be room for more narratives where it's like, she's gay and that's important, but that's not the story. <laughs> and everything's fine. <laughs> and the world didn't end. Yeah. The gay thing is not the problem. The problem is like, everything else. The problem is her family or her dog or her neighbors. Like the problem is not that she's in love with a woman or a trans person. Yeah. Um, so that's a pretty good segue. And we're going to talk a little bit more about calling Dr. Laura. And so I'm going to give, uh, the summary real quick, um, that I, that I found on, uh, on various book pages. So when Nicole Georges was two years old, her mother told her that her father was dead. When she was 23, a psychic told her he was alive. 
Her half-sister, saddled with guilt, admits that the psychic is right and that the whole family has conspired to keep him a secret. Sent into a tailspin about her identity, Nicole turns to radio talk show host Dr. Laura Schlesinger for advice. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm, I... I'll get to Dr. Laura later, but um, let's. I want to ask why people resonated with this story so much. And this is a true story, just for the record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why people resonated with it? Yeah. I mean, I heard from a lot of people that had a lot of appalling family secrets. That's the thing. Secrets are isolating. It's isolating to have to keep other people's secrets, to keep your own secrets. It keeps you away from other people in your life. It keeps you on your toes. You can't really relax. Um, and so I think a lot of people felt, or, I mean, I, it, the extraordinary part is that a palm reader revealed the whole thing. It wasn't like I was such a super sleuth that I figured it out. Mm-hmm. Just it was a palm reader. It was probably like $10, $15 palm reading in Portland, Oregon in the early 2000s. And she just within five minutes was like, maybe the man you think is your father is dead, but your real father is very much alive. And it just, I mean, under... In what world is that person correct? <laughs> I don't know. That's really, that's, that's wild. I mean, I obviously uh, have a, a level of, of belief in uh, the beyond and in magic and stuff like that. But it, it's still, when you see something like that happen, it gives you chills. <laughs> so um, that's a, that's an amazing kickoff to a story of, of discovery. So yeah, I can, I can see how that would be extremely effective for people reading it. But let's talk about Dr. Laura Schlesinger a little bit. (laughs) I remember being a kid and I think you may have mentioned this too, but like getting picked up from school and listening to Dr. Laura all the way home. And I was raised in like, not a super, super conservative house, but a relatively conservative house. But she, even for me was like, the meanest person ever. And I just was like, why are, why are these people letting her yell at them? (laughs) So, but you talked with her. Oh, she yelled at me. Yeah, I bet she did. (laughs) Could you, could you talk a little more about what it was like to speak with her and why you decided to call her of all people? (laughs) Well, you know, it, it was weird. So my, my mom thinks that like, rules and boundaries and punishments are mean like her dogs are like completely untrained and will just jump on you and push you down the stairs and so so when I was a kid there was like no rules there was no structure there was no order everything was like I'm providing structure for my dog right now (laughs) Um, there was no structure there was no order there was no rules there was a lot of chaos and so Dr. Laura went from being this like evil woman that my mom was listening to to like I don't know. Then I was listening to her in kind of a, like a kitschy campy way. And then eventually it just, you know, and I kind of liked, there's a part of it where she's being mean to people and you kind of like it. <laughs> I, I guess that's people true. People will call and they'll be like, my brother's a child molester. Should he come? Doctor will be like, how dare you? And you know, <laughs> she'll, she'll just yell at people on the radio. And sometimes you're like, you know what? I don't like her, but that's right. <laughs> but I, I, at some point I was like, Dr. Laura is nothing but rules. She's made of rules and hairspray and she loves boundaries, even though she hates that word. And even though she's like, hates feminists, which is me, has said some <laughs> fucked up stuff about gay people, had a horrible, she's, I would never talk to her about race. I, before she freaked out and tried to make a point about race that was very misguided, I called her. This was long before that. 
but I called her just because I was like listening to it. Always loved advice shows. I wanted to call an advice show, but I never had a problem that was good enough. And then I was like, this problem is good enough. <laughs> yes. I want to know, should I go home for Christmas or should I tell my mom, Hey, I know you lied to me about my dad being dead. Should I tell her before I agree to go home for Christmas? What do I do? And she was kind of mad at me because she thought I was harping on my dad, who she thought was probably a loser anyway. <laughs> of course. She was, she was like, your mom was probably trying to protect you. What's your problem? <laughs> wow. Go home. Enjoy Christmas. You've had enough chaos. Go home and enjoy Christmas. And I started, I started crying. I just... There was something about her that's like, she's tough. She's like a tough mom. Yeah. I, I just, it was, it was, a, it was a lot. It's, it's also very grounding advice, um, you know, after being kind of propelled on this journey by a psychic and, and having it be very like emotionally fraught and private. And then just her saying, just go home for Christmas. Like, it's fine. That's, that's brings you back to earth real quick. I would think it was such in retrospect, I get what she was after, but it was such weird advice. Yeah. And I think, I think, I mean, I think part of the problem is, you know, I had like 40 seconds to spit out my problem and the entirety of my, my experience being parented and like what it meant to me or what, it, you know, I just had like very little time to explain before mm -hmm. she starts cutting in. Yeah. And even though I thought if you listen to her show, you know, there's rules. You know, she's going to yell at you if you say that you're like living with your spouse. Oh, God. Shacking up. You're shacking up. <laughs> if you have a child out of wedlock, like, you know, all the rules. And so I was like trying so hard to follow the rules. And I still, she still was like, didn't Jeremy ask you all those questions? Like she just still yelled at me. <laughs> I just failed. I just really. I, or I, you succeeded anyway, I, because she has to entertain. <laughs> She does. It's, it's like, she's like, she's tough. And then she's nurturing. It's a real, I don't know. I've had people be like, are you sure you're not into like SM? Because it's, she's a real <laughs> massive, a real sadist that way. Yeah. Where she's really like, whap, whap, like smacking you. And then she's hugging you and being like, see, it's okay. I had to do it. You made me do that. You're going to be okay though. It, you it really felt like that. Your safe word is hanging up. <laughs> your consent was dialing the phone. <laughs> My consent was dialing 1-800-D-R-L-A-U-R-A. -A. Oh my God, that's wild. Um, well, you're definitely getting mic time now to uh, tell your story. So that's pretty great. <laughs> um, so how did, uh, how did that opportunity arise um, to create the podcast based on your book for uh, OPB, for Oregon Public Broadcasting? Oh, well, I've been back and forth from Portland to LA for a while and um, my old friend, Claudia was working with OPB. So she knew that I was in LA and she was like, Hey, I want to do a story about LA. Um, while I'm there, can I interview you for our, for our radio station? And I was like, sure. So she followed me around. We went to a punk aerobics class. We went to some vegan taco trucks. And then I just, I told her that I wanted to try and pitch my Dr. Laura story to like this American life, mm -hmm. some kind of show like that, because I just felt like being in LA, seeing how many things get made that just are feel less interesting than this real story. Yes. I felt like there was like something else that could happen. So I was like, do you think that you could help me figure out how to take this to like this American life? And Claudia just said, 
well, I have a better idea. What if we made a full podcast out of it? And so we planned this whole podcast where we were going to go on a road trip and visit my family and go like hang out and have coffee with every person and interview everybody in my family who I'd ever met through the secret and after the book came out and then COVID happened. Oh no. It's a blessing and a curse because it means that we had to take everything to Zoom, which meant we could interview more people, but also that we weren't getting that kind of one-on-one hangout time, I guess. That like uh, unexplainable magic that happens when you're in person with somebody. Um, But yeah, like, so was it weird to talk to everyone about these issues or do you feel like all the weirdness or awkwardness was already uh, addressed when you were writing, um, writing the book in the first place? It didn't seem that weird because, you know, the weirdest part was, I don't know if weird was the word I would use, but my sister, one of my sisters agreed to help me with the podcast and be interviewed for it. And she just found it really emotionally draining. Right. I mean, I think everybody who we interviewed had a reason to be there. It was either to help me out because they felt bad that this was done to me, that I was Mm -hmm. like, that my choices were and information were taken away from me at a young age. So they wanted to give me as much information and support as they could now, or they wanted to say something about my dad. They wanted to express some truths about him and their experience with him. So people in general were very open to talking with me, but, you know, I felt like with my sister, when we were talking about the harder points in my childhood, she was like, Oh, I don't know how you do this. Cause it just, it feels a little bit like a therapy session, like a two hour long therapy session, just talking about all these events that you have been programmed or trained to just stuff down and never look at again. Right. And that's something that you're used to with the kind of art you do and maybe something that she's never had to uh, express that way before. Well, yeah, she was like, how can you do this? Have you thought about changing jobs? Just like, this seems awful. <laughs> changing jobs. I love it. <laughs> People don't usually think about that as an option when they're a creator. <laughs> Well, that's the, I mean, sometimes I tell people be like, why are you a cartoonist? Or I was like, it's just like Joan Rivers had a bit where she was like, you don't ask a nun why they're a nun. You know, like when people ask her why she's a comedian, she's like, it's a calling. It's just a calling That's you just, you're just going to do it. And I, it's, it is like a compulsion almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, people are benefiting from it though. So at least there's that. (laughs) So yeah, Michelle T, I saw that you had toured with her and then I listened to a couple of uh, podcasts and um, I have her book, Modern Tarot, which I love. And it's kind of my like go-to, one of my go-to guidebooks for tarot. Um, So it made me wonder if you had ever thought of drawing your own tarot deck and maybe featuring Ponyo or Beja. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I, I kind of have and kind of haven't thought about that. But I love that you brought that up. I love that book. I love Michelle. And she has a new podcast coming out on Spotify about witchcraft. <gasps> Yay. Um, it's called Your Magic. And I think it's out pretty soon. But so look that up. And certainly she'd be a great person to talk to. Oh, yeah. I saw I, it on Instagram, actually. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, but you know what? I One of my friends for my birthday, because I just turned 40. And so it's such a big deal that somebody sent, one of my friends sent me like a road opener candle and she sent me a spell to go with it. And the spell required tarot cards and mine were in LA and I was in Portland. So I just drew the cards that were required for the spell. Oh, wow. I just, I just looked them up and drew them. And then I was like, well, this is going to be even more meaningful and more charged and better. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm actually like kind of taking in all the elements while I'm drawing them. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that was fun. Uh, I don't, I've, I would consider it for sure. Oh my, I, well, I would, I would look for it and buy it. So I'm, I'm always into there, there's someone else and I don't remember who it is, but there's just this random person online who, um, is working on a deck called the major do- uh, Barkana, the, <laughs> the major Barkana, and they just won't finish the deck. <laughs> and I've been waiting for so long. I'm just How all long about is it. Taken? Is it, what is it? 80 cards? How many cards? Is yeah, it? it's a lot. Um, like for a cartoonist, that's like nothing. Yeah. Um, I think this person is more of an illustrator, um, than a cartoonist, but this is the difference. Illustrators, cartoonists, and animators are on a spectrum, like where animators draw, have to draw so fast and so much stuff that if you ask them to draw comics, they're like, who cares? That's like no problem at all. But an illustrator <laughs> taking it the other illustrators get to take so long for one picture and just really making it perfect. But then if you were asked to ask them to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and be like an animator, they would be extremely stressful. (laughs) It would be so stressful for, I just, I realized this from teaching comics and having students come from an animation background versus people that are illustrators Mm -hmm. and they all want to meet in the middle for comics. And you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Do you find it hard to teach comics or does, do people kind of come in knowing what they're doing? (laughs) I love teaching comics. I've been teaching comics for like almost 20 years. I don't find it hard to do, but the hard part is that at least since I teach at an MFA program and I have taught at MFA programs for a while, there's not, there aren't a lot of BFAs in comics, Mm -hmm. even though CCA where I teach is beginning a BFA in comics, which is really cool. Um, There aren't that many BFAs in comics. So there's a lot of people that come in and some of them either have never drawn at all, but are great at writing or have drawn a ton, but aren't, but have, don't have a lot of experience writing. And so finding a way to teach in the middle, to teach both of those people, um, that's the thing that's been a real challenge for me. Mm. Yeah. But I do it, but that's just the only, that's the part of the job that my brain has to work a little bit harder to be like, okay, how do I put forward these principles in a way that can benefit both types of students? Right. You have to to, uh, erect two different uh, contextualizations for two different types of people. And it's always hard when you have more than one audience that you have to create for. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner and I'm always willing to, you know, try more as a teacher and learn more so I can do better. That's great. Uh, so we like to ask our guests, what, uh, what are you reading right now? Okay. I brought, I knew you were going to ask me this. So I brought, I'm reading a lot of books. I hope it's not too many books. It's never too many books. (laughs) Okay. Well, my great friend Capricorn Beth Pickens has this book coming out soon, which is called make your art, no matter what. Mm. That's basically a self-help book for artists. It has stuff about time management, money, fear, um, isolation, feelings, working. It's, I love her stuff so much. Awesome. And that's mostly visual art? No, this is for any artist. So writers, painters, cartoonists, musicians, dancers, whatever. She's an arts consultant. Like she has training as a therapist, but then decided to consult with artists instead. So she kind of, all she does is work with all, every single kind of artist. Marvelous. I'm also reading this book called Paying the Land by Joe Sacco, which is, um, from the heir to R. Crumb and Art Spiegelman, a masterly work of comics journalism about indigenous North America, resource extraction, and our debt to the natural world. Oh, wow. 
and I'm partway through that. And I'm also reading this great, I just finished this great comic anthology called Menopause, a comic treatment. <laughs> it's all comics about menopause by people like Linda Berry, Ellen Forney, Mimi Pond. It's awesome. Excellent. And then side notes, I also have Eileen Miles for now, which is um, like a, it's, it's prose, but also poetry by Eileen. And this book that's helping hold my microphone up. I just started The 30 Names of Night by Zane Jukadar. Um, it is fiction and he is a Syrian trans novelist. Ooh. And that was kind of all I needed to know going in because I'm part Syrian. Five years after a suspicious fire killed his mother, a closeted Syrian-American trans boy sheds his birth name and searches for a new one. That's a good enough premise for me. So this is what I'm reading a lot of things and it's hard to even find time to read one book, but I just can't help it. I love them all. Yeah. I, I always tell myself that I'm just going to do one at a time and it never happens. There will just be another one that starts creeping in and I'll be like, it's okay because one is nonfiction and, and one is fiction. And then, you know, a graphic novel will sneak in and then it's just pandemonium from there. Of course. Well, and also doing a podcast, I get so many promotional books. Yes. Or books that people want me to blurb or so I, then I have like homework. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I got, I have, sorry, I have this stack of three books, but I just got this other book I have to read by Friday. <laughs> Exactly. And you still want to enjoy it because you don't want to feel like you're working when you're reading a, a book that's supposed to be entertaining. But but it's nice to have like an assignment to be like, oh, you have a due date. You have to read this. But so <laughs> more Capricorning happening yeah. over here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so t- tell us a little bit more about where people can listen to the podcast and just otherwise where you would like to be found. Um. The podcast that's an adaptation of my book, Calling Dr. Laura, so the one about family secrets, is called Relative Fiction, and it's coming out in March, probably, I think, probably the very end of March, Mm -hmm. Um, and you can find it wherever you find podcasts. You can always find me at Nicole J. George's on Instagram, or that's also the title of my website. It's just my name, Uh, and I will definitely be posting about Relative Fiction on there. In the meantime, I do a podcast called Sagittarian Matters every week. I'm doing a podcast about the amazing race called the gay amazing race. Hmm. Um, you can find me, just find me online, Nicole J. George's. And you give advice on your uh, podcast too, don't you? I love giving advice on my podcast. Who do you kind of use as your, uh, as your model when you do that? No, I am guessing it's not Dr. Laura. It's Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Gosh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a model for it. I, you know, I, I used to like, savage love, but I feel like Dan Savage repeats himself too much and he hates fat people too much. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I mean, I, I liked listening to it until he started. Li- so it's like a baby, like, but also I really like Cheryl Strait and dear sugar. Yes. Not to say that my answers are quite as like literarily worthwhile. I don't know. I just try to incorporate basically like tens of thousands of dollars and hours in therapy. <laughs> and then mixed in with my sort of, um, ideological themes about life as a working artist or as a queer person or as a human being. And then the advice comes forth from there. Um, yeah, that has to be a deep well to draw from rather than just uh, one single foundation. (laughs) Oh yeah. And I have to say with the Capricorn moon and rising, 
I do have rigid ideas about certain things. And I think, I think with any advice giver, people like it if there's just like rules in place. It's not like they're going to take your advice necessarily. Mm. They're not legally bound to take your advice, (laughs) but I think that they, they hear it. Even if it's not the thing they're going to do, the concept of it is there. So when they finally get there, they can feel supported or it's just like, Oh, I never thought of this idea of like, there's, you know, there's an order to life from this person's perspective. What do I like from that? Even just being heard too, um, and being able to like put your issue into words and tell someone about it and maybe tell multiple people if it's on a, uh, on a call or a podcast or something like that. <laughs> well, I love my listeners and I love everybody who sends us questions and I just, I want to help them. I really, you know, I'm, I'm self-taught everything I know, everything I do for a living, I'm self-taught. And so I really feel like sharing whatever it is, whether it's professional advice or like emotional advice. I just want to be able to share that stuff and pay it forward. Cause I had to learn so many things like a caveman. And I just think life can be a lot easier. <laughs> yes. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners who maybe are aspiring creators or uh, people who want to work with creators? Hmm. Well, perfectionism is the enemy of productivity. That's one thing I want to say. And then progress, not perfection is another thing. So basically like give yourself credit creators for how far you've come. Cause I know for me, my expectations are a moving target. So sometimes I'll reach one goal and then I won't even be able to feel it because I'm looking at the next goal. Mm. So let yourself feel how far you've come, especially during this past year of pandemic, mm-hmm. give yourself a break. Your work's going to be there and um, just put stuff out. When I say perfectionism is the enemy of productivity, like you need to put stuff out. The longer it sits around in your house and you reread it and, you know, beat yourself up over it, the, the less stuff you're going to put into the world. And we got limited time on earth. So just it's, put it out. It'll probably be okay. Yeah. That... People, people put out way worse stuff <laughs> than you're probably <laughs> so... going to put out and are proud about like, you know, and are stoked on it. So just do it. Especially if you're the kind of voice that people don't normally hear. Don't let your stuff just sit and mold over in your desk. Put it out there. People need to read it. People need to hear it. Everyone deserves to everyone deserves to be heard. And I believe in social change through amplifying the voices of people that are not normally heard. Right. And you never know who's going to find you and not know that they needed to see your story. Yeah. And even people totally who aren't like you, who never met anyone like you, your story could really impact them and the way they think about people like you. Exactly. Well, well, thank you so much for that. Um, and thank you for joining hybrid pub scout today. Um, you can find hybrid pub scout, um, at hybridpubscout.com on Twitter at hybrid pub scout on Instagram at hybrid pub scout pod and, uh, on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And, um, thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) And uh, thanks for giving a rip about books and go take on the day.